What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 12, Chapter 13 of War and Peace, Volume 4, by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 12, Chapter 13 Twenty-three soldiers, three officers, and two officials were confined in the shed in which Pierre had been placed, and where he remained for four weeks. When Pierre remembered them afterwards, they all seemed misty figures to him except Platon Karatayev, who always maintained in his mind a most vivid and precious memory, and the personification of everything Russian, kindly, and round. When Pierre saw his neighbor next morning at dawn, the first impression of him, as of something round, was fully confirmed. Platon's whole figure, in a French overcoat girdled with a cord, a soldier's cap and bast shoes, was round. His head was quite round, his back, chest, shoulders, and even his arms, which he held as if ever ready to embrace something, were rounded. His pleasant smile and his large gentle brown eyes were also round. Platon Karatev must have been fifty, judging by his stories of campaigns he had been in, told as by an old soldier. He did not himself know his age, and was quite unable to determine it. But his brilliantly white strong teeth, which showed in two unbroken semicircles when he laughed, as he often did, were all sound and good. There was not a grey hair in his beard or on his head, and his whole body gave an impression of suppleness, and especially of firmness and endurance. His face, despite its fine rounded wrinkles, had an expression of innocence and youth. His voice was pleasant and musical. But the chief peculiarity of his speech was his directness and appositeness. It was evident that he never considered what he had said or was going to say, and consequently the rapidity and justice of his intonation had an irresistible persuasiveness. His physical strength and agility during the first days of his imprisonment were such that he seemed not to know what fatigue and sickness meant. Every night before lying down he said, "'Lord, lay me down as a stone and raise me up as a loaf.' And every morning on getting up he said, 
I lay down and curled up, I get up and shake myself." And indeed he only had to lie down to fall asleep like a stone, and he only had to shake himself to be ready without a moment's delay for some work, just as children are ready to play directly they awake. He could do everything, not very well, but not badly. He baked, cooked, sewed, planed and mended boots. He was always busy and only at night allowed himself conversation of which he was fond and songs. He did not sing like a trained singer who knows he is listened to, but like the birds, evidently giving vent to the sounds in the same way that one stretches oneself, or walks about to get rid of stiffness, and the sounds were always high-pitched, mournful, delicate, and almost feminine. And his face at such times was very serious. Having been taken prisoner and allowed his beard to grow, he seemed to have thrown off all that had been forced upon him, everything military and alien to himself, and had returned to his former peasant habits. "'A soldier on leave, a shirt outside breeches,' he would say. He did not like talking about his life as a soldier, though he did not complain, and often mentioned that he had not been flogged once during the whole of his army service. When he related anything, it was generally some old and evidently precious memory of his Christian life, as he called his peasant existence. The proverbs, of which his talk was full, were for the most part not the coarse and indecent saws soldiers employ, but those folk-sayings which taken without a context seem so insignificant, but when used appositely suddenly acquire a significance of profound wisdom. He would often say the exact opposite of what he had said on a previous occasion, yet both would be right. He liked to talk, and he talked well, adorning his speech with terms of endearment and with folk-sayings, which Pierre thought he invented himself, but the chief charm of his talk lay in the fact that the commonest events, sometimes just as Pierre had witnessed without taking notice of them, assumed in Karatayev's a character of solemn fitness. He liked to hear the folk-tales one of the soldiers used to tell of an evening, they were always the same, but most of all he liked to hear stories of real life. He would smile joyfully when listening to such stories, now and then putting in a word or asking a question to make the moral beauty of what he was told clear to himself. Karatayev had no attachments, friendships, or love as Pierre understood them but loved and lived affectionately with everything life brought him in contact with, particularly with man, not any particular man, but those with whom he happened to be. He loved his dog, his comrades, the French, and Pierre who was his neighbor, but Pierre felt that in spite of Karatayev's affectionate tenderness for him, by which he unconsciously gave Pierre's spiritual life its due, he would not have grieved for a moment at parting from him and Pierre began to feel in the same way toward Karatayev. To all the other prisoners Platon Karatayev seemed a most ordinary soldier. They called him Little Falcon or Platosha, chafed him good-naturedly and sent him on errands. But to Pierre he always remained what he had seemed that first night, an unfathomable, rounded, eternal personification of the spirit of simplicity and truth. Platon Karatayev knew nothing by heart except his prayers. When he began to speak he seemed not to know how he would conclude. Sometimes Pierre, struck by the meaning of his words, 
would ask him to repeat them, but Platon could never recall what he had said a moment before, just as he never could repeat to Pierre the words of his favorite song, native and birch-tree, and my heart is sick occurred in it, but when spoken and not sung, no meaning could be got out of it. He did not and could not understand the meaning of words apart from their context. Every word and action of his was the manifestation of an activity unknown to him, which was his life. But his life, as he regarded it, had no meaning as a separate thing. It had meaning only as a part of a whole of which he was always conscious. His words and actions flowed from him as evenly, inevitably, and spontaneously as fragrance exhales from a flower. He could not understand the value or significance of any word or deed taken separately. End of Book Twelve, Chapter Thirteen Book Twelve, Chapter Fourteen Of War and Peace, Volume Four by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Twelve, Chapter Fourteen. When Princess Mary heard from Nicholas that her brother was with the Rostovs at Yaroslavl, she at once prepared to go there, in spite of her aunt's efforts to dissuade her, and not merely to go herself, but to take her nephew with her. Whether it were difficult or easy, possible or impossible, she did not ask and did not want to know. It was her duty, not only to herself, to be near her brother who was perhaps dying, but to do everything possible to take his son to him, and so she prepared to set off. That she had not heard from Prince Andrew himself, Prince Mary attributed to his being too weak to write, or to his considering the long journey too hard and too dangerous for her and his son. In a few days Princess Mary was ready to start. Her equipages were the huge family coach in which she had travelled to Voronezh, a semi-open trap and a baggage cart. With her travelled Mademoiselle Brienne, little Nicholas and his tutor, her old nurse and three maids, Tikhon and a young footman and courier her aunt had sent to accompany her. The usual route through Moscow could not be thought of, and the roundabout way Princess Mary was obliged to take, through Lipetsk, Ryazan, Vladimir, and Shuya, was very long, and as post-horses were not everywhere obtainable, very difficult, and near Ryazan, where the French were said to have shown themselves, was even dangerous. During this difficult journey, Mademoiselle Brienne, de Salle, and Princess Mary's servants were astonished at her energy and firmness of spirit. She went to bed later and rose earlier than any of them and no difficulties daunted her. Thanks to her activity and energy, which infected her fellow-travellers, they approached Yaroslavl by the end of the second week. The last days of her stay in Voronezh had been the happiest of her life. Her love for Rostov no longer tormented or agitated her. It filled her whole soul, had become an integral part of herself, and she no longer struggled against it. Latterly, she had become convinced that she loved and was beloved, though she never said this definitely to herself in words. She had become convinced of it at her last interview with Nicholas, when he had come to tell her that her brother was with the Rostovs. Not by a single word had Nicholas alluded to the fact that Prince Andrew's relations with Natasha might, if he recovered, be renewed, but Princess Mary saw by his face that he knew and thought of this. 
Yet, in spite of that, his relation to her, considerate, delicate, and loving, not only remained unchanged, but it sometimes seemed to Princess Mary that he was even glad that the family connection between them allowed him to express his friendship more freely. She knew that she loved for the first and only time in her life, and felt that she was beloved, and was happy in regard to it. But this happiness on one side of her spiritual nature did not prevent her feeling grief for her brother with full force. On the contrary, that spiritual tranquillity on the one side made it the more possible for her to give full play to her feeling for her brother. That feeling was so strong at the moment of leaving Voronezh that those who saw her off, as they looked at her careworn, despairing face, felt sure that she would fall ill on the journey. But the very difficulties and preoccupations of the journey, which she took so actively in hand, saved her for a while from her grief and gave her strength. As always happens when traveling, Princess Mary thought only of the journey itself, forgetting its object. But as she approached Yaroslavl, the thought of what might await her there, not after many days but that very evening, again presented itself to her and her agitation increased to its utmost limit. The courier who had been sent on in advance to find out where the Rostovs were staying in Yaroslavl, and in what condition Prince Andrew was, when he met the big coach just entering the town gates was appalled by the terrible pallor of the princess's face, that looked out at him from the window. "'I have found out everything, Your Excellency. The Rostovs are staying at the merchant Bronikov's house, in the square not far from here, right above the Volga,' said the courier. Princess Mary looked at him with frightened inquiry, not understanding why he did not reply to what she chiefly wanted to know. How was her brother?' Mademoiselle Bourienne put that question for her. "'How is the prince?' she asked. "'His Excellency is staying in the same house with them.' "'Then he is alive,' thought Princess Mary, and asked in a low voice, "'How is he?' "'The servants say he is still the same.' What still the same might mean Princess Mary did not ask, but with an unnoticed glance at little seven-year-old Nicholas, who was sitting in front of her looking with pleasure at the town, she bowed her head and did not raise it again till the heavy coach, rumbling, shaking, and swaying, came to a stop. The carriage steps clattered as they were let down. The carriage door was opened. On the left there was water, a great river, and on the right a porch. There were people at the entrance, servants and a rosy girl with a large plait of black hair, smiling, as it seemed to Princess Mary, in an unpleasantly affected way. This was Sonia. Princess Mary ran up the steps. "'This way, this way,' said the girl, with the same artificial smile, and the princess found herself in the hall, facing an elderly woman of oriental type, who came rapidly to meet her with a look of emotion. This was the countess. She embraced Princess Mary and kissed her. "'Mon enfant,' she muttered, "'je vous aimez-vous connais depuis longtemps. My child, I love you and have known you a long time.' Despite her excitement, Princess Mary realized that this was the Countess and that it was necessary to say something to her. Hardly knowing how she did it, she contrived to utter a few polite phrases in French in the same tone as those that had been addressed to her, and asked, "'How is he?' "'The doctor says that he is not in danger,' said the Countess, but as she spoke 
she raised her eyes with a sigh, and her gesture conveyed a contradiction of her words. "'Where is he? Can I see him, can I?' asked the princess. "'One moment, princess, one moment, my dear. Is this his son?' said the countess, turning to little Nicholas, who was coming in with Dessau. "'There will be room for everybody. This is a big house. Oh, what a lovely boy!' The countess took Princess Mary into the drawing-room, where Sonia was talking to Mademoiselle Bourienne. The countess caressed the boy, and the old count came in and welcomed the princess. He had changed very much since Princess Mary had last seen him. Then he had been a brisk, cheerful, self-assured old man. Now he seemed a pitiful, bewildered person. While talking to Princess Mary he continually looked round as if asking everyone whether he was doing the right thing. After the destruction of Moscow and of his property, thrown out of his accustomed groove, he seemed to have lost the sense of his own significance and to feel that there was no longer a place for him in life. In spite of her one desire to see her brother as soon as possible, and her vexation that at the moment when all she wanted was to see him, they should be trying to entertain her and pretending to admire her nephew, the princess noticed all that was going on around her and felt the necessity of submitting, for a time, to this new order of things which she had entered. She knew it to be necessary, and though it was hard for her, she was not vexed with these people. "'This is my niece,' said the Count, introducing Sonia. "'You don't know her, Princess?' Princess Mary turned to Sonia, and, trying to stifle the hostile feeling that arose in her toward the girl, she kissed her but she felt oppressed by the fact that the mood of every one around her was so far from what was in her own heart. "'Where is he?' she asked again, addressing them all. "'He is downstairs. Natasha is with him,' answered Sonia, flushing. "'We have sent to ask. I think you must be tired, Princess.' Tears of vexation showed themselves in Princess Mary's eyes. She turned away, and was about to ask the Countess again how to go to him, when light, impetuous, and seemingly buoyant steps were heard at the door. The Princess looked round and saw Natasha coming in, almost running. That Natasha, whom she had liked so little at their meeting in Moscow long since. But hardly had the Princess looked at Natasha's face, before she realized that here was a real comrade in her grief, and consequently a friend. She ran to meet her, embraced her, and began to cry on her shoulder. As soon as Natasha, sitting at the head of Prince Andrew's bed, heard of Princess Mary's arrival, she softly left his room and hastened to her with those swift steps that had sounded buoyant to Princess Mary. There was only one expression on her agitated face when she ran into the drawing-room, that of love, boundless love for him, for her, and for all that was near to the man she loved, and of pity suffering for others, and passionate desire to give herself entirely to helping them. It was plain that at that moment there was in Natasha's heart no thought of herself or of her own relations with Prince Andrew. Princess Mary, with her acute sensibility, understood all this at the first glance at Natasha's face, and wept on her shoulder with sorrowful pleasure. "'Come, come to him, Mary,' said Natasha, leading her into the other room. Princess Mary raised her head, dried her eyes, and turned to Natasha. She felt that from her she would be able to understand and learn everything. 
How—' She began her question, but stopped short. She felt that it was impossible to ask, or to answer, in words. Natasha's face and eyes would have to tell her all more clearly and profoundly. Natasha was gazing at her, but seemed afraid and in doubt whether to say all she knew or not. She seemed to feel that before those luminous eyes which penetrated into the very depths of her heart, it was impossible not to tell the whole truth which she saw. And suddenly Natasha's lips twitched, ugly wrinkles gathered round her mouth, and covering her face with her hands she burst into sobs. Princess Mary understood. But she still hoped and asked in words she herself did not trust. But how is his wound? What is his general condition? You—you—will see, was all Natasha could say. They sat a little while downstairs near his room till they had left off crying and were able to go to him with calm faces. How has his whole illness gone? Is it long since he grew worse? When did this happen? Princess Mary inquired. Natasha told her that at first there had been danger from his fever's condition and the pain he suffered, but at Troitsa that had passed and the doctor had only been afraid of gangrene. That danger had also passed. When they reached Yaroslavl the wound had begun to fester. Natasha knew all about such things as festering, and the doctor had said that the festering might take a normal course. Then fever set in, but the doctor had said the fever was not very serious. But two days ago this suddenly happened," said Natasha, struggling with her sobs. I don't know why, but you will see what he is like. Is he weaker, thinner? asked the princess. No, it's not that, but worse. You will see. Oh, Mary, he is too good. He cannot live, cannot live, because... End of Book Twelve, Chapter Fourteen Book Twelve, Chapter Fifteen Of War and Peace, Volume Four By Leo Tolstoy Translated by Elmer Maud This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Twelve Chapter 15 When Natasha opened Prince Andrew's door with a familiar movement and let Princess Mary pass into the room before her, the princess felt the sobs in her throat. Hard as she had tried to prepare herself, and now tried to remain tranquil, she knew that she would be unable to look at him without tears. The princess understood what Natasha had meant by the words, Two days ago this suddenly happened. She understood those words to mean that he had suddenly softened and that his softening and gentleness were signs of approaching death. As she stepped to the door she already saw in imagination Andrew's face as she remembered it in childhood, a gentle, mild, sympathetic face which he had rarely shown, and which therefore affected her very strongly. She was sure he would speak soft, tender words to her, such as her father had uttered before his death, and that she would not be able to bear it and would burst into sobs in his presence. Yet sooner or later it had to be, and she went in. The sobs rose higher and higher in her throat as she more and more clearly distinguished his form, and her short-sighted eyes tried to make out his features, 
and then she saw his face and met his gaze. He was lying in a squirrel-fur dressing-gown on a divan, surrounded by pillows. He was thin and pale. In one thin, translucently white hand he held a handkerchief, while with the other he stroked the delicate moustache he had grown, moving his fingers slowly. His eyes gazed at them as they entered. On seeing his face and meeting his eyes, Princess Mary's pace suddenly slackened. She felt her tears dry up and her sobs ceased. She suddenly felt guilty, and grew timid on catching the expression of his face and eyes. "'But in what am I to blame?' she asked herself. And his cold, stern look replied, "'Because you are alive and thinking of the living, while I—' In the deep gaze that seemed to look not outwards but inwards, there was an almost hostile expression as he slowly regarded his sister and Natasha. He kissed his sister, holding her hand in his as was their wont. "'How are you, Mary? How did you manage to get here?' said he in a voice as calm and aloof as his look. Had he screamed in agony, that scream would not have struck such horror into Princess Mary's heart as the tone of his voice. "'And have you brought little Nicholas?' he asked in the same slow, quiet manner, and with an obvious effort to remember. "'How are you now?' said Princess Mary, herself surprised at what she was saying. "'That, my dear, you must ask the doctor,' he replied and again making an evident effort to be affectionate, he said with his lips only, his words clearly did not correspond to his thoughts, Merci, cher ami, d'être venu. Thank you for coming, my dear. Princess Mary pressed his hand. The pressure made him wince just perceptibly. He was silent, and she did not know what to say. She now understood what had happened to him two days before. In his words, his tone, and especially in that calm, almost antagonistic look, could be felt an estrangement from everything belonging to this world, terrible in one who is alive. Evidently only with an effort did he understand anything living. But it was obvious that he failed to understand, not because he lacked the power to do so, but because he understood something else, something the living did not and could not understand and which wholly occupied his mind. "'There, you see how strangely fate has brought us together,' said he, breaking the silence and pointing to Natasha. "'She looks after me all the time.' Princess Mary heard him and did not understand how he could say such a thing. He, the sensitive, tender Prince Andrew, how could he say that, before her whom he loved and who loved him? Had he expected to live, he could not have said those words in that offensively cold tone. If he had not known that he was dying, how could he have failed to pity her, and how could he speak like that in her presence? The only explanation was that he was indifferent, because something else much more important had been revealed to him. The conversation was cold and disconnected and continually broke off. "'Mary came by way of Riazan,' said Natasha. Prince Andrew did not notice that she called his sister Mary, and only after calling her so in his presence did Natasha notice it herself. Really? he asked. They told her that all Moscow has been burned down, and that— Natasha stopped. 
it was impossible to talk. It was plain that he was making an effort to listen, but could not do so. "'Yes, they say it's burned,' he said. "'It's a great pity.' And he gazed straight before him, absently stroking his moustache with his fingers. "'And so you have met Count Nicholas, Mary?' Prince Andrew suddenly said, evidently wishing to speak pleasantly to them. "'He wrote here that he took a great liking to you.' He went on simply and calmly, evidently unable to understand all the complex significance his words had for living people. "'If you liked him, too, it would be a good thing for you to get married,' he added rather more quickly, as if pleased at having found words he had long been seeking. Princess Mary heard his words, but they had no meaning for her, except as proof of how far away he now was from everything living. "'Why talk of me?' she said quietly and glanced at Natasha. Natasha, who felt her glance, did not look at her. All three were again silent. "'Andrew, would you like,' Princess Mary suddenly said in a trembling voice, "'would you like to see little Nicholas? He is always talking about you.' Prince Andrew smiled just perceptibly and for the first time, but Princess Mary, who knew his face so well, saw with horror that he did not smile with pleasure or affection for his son, but with quiet, gentle irony, because he thought she was trying what she believed to be the last means of arousing him. "'Yes, I shall be very glad to see him. Is he quite well?' When little Nicholas was brought into Prince Andrew's room, he looked at his father with frightened eyes, but did not cry because no one else was crying. Prince Andrew kissed him and evidently did not know what to say to him. When Nicholas had been led away, Princess Mary again went up to her brother, kissed him, and, unable to restrain her tears any longer, began to cry. He looked at her attentively. "'Is it about Nicholas?' he asked. Princess Mary nodded her head, weeping. "'Mary, you know the gossip,' but he broke off. "'What did you say?' "'Nothing. You mustn't cry here,' he said, looking at her with the same cold expression. When Princess Mary began to cry, he understood that she was crying at the thought that little Nicholas would be left without a father. With a great effort he tried to return to life and to see things from their point of view. "'Yes, to them it must seem sad,' he thought but how simple it is. The fowls of the air sow not, neither do they reap, yet your father feedeth them," he said to himself, and wished to say to Princess Mary. But no, they will take it their own way. They won't understand. They can't understand that all those feelings they prize so, all our feelings, all those ideas that seem so important to us, are unnecessary. We cannot understand one another." And he remained silent. Prince Andrew's little son was seven. He could scarcely read and knew nothing. After that day he lived through many things, gaining knowledge, observation, and experience, but had he possessed all the faculties he afterwards acquired, he could not have had a better or more profound understanding of the meaning of the scene he had witnessed between his father, Mary, and Natasha than he had then. He understood it completely, 
and, leaving the room without crying, went silently up to Natasha, who had come out with him, and looked shyly at her with his beautiful, thoughtful eyes, then his uplifted, rosy upper lip trembled, and leaning his head against her, he began to cry. After that he avoided de Salle and the Countess who caressed him, and either sat alone or came timidly to Princess Mary, or to Natasha, of whom he seemed even fonder than of his aunt, and clung to them quietly and shyly. When Princess Mary had left Prince Andrew, she fully understood what Natasha's face had told her. She did not speak any more to Natasha of hopes of saving his life. She took turns with her beside the sofa, and did not cry any more, but prayed continually, turning in soul to that eternal and unfathomable, whose presence above the dying man was now so evident. End of Book Twelve, Chapter Fifteen Book Twelve, Chapter Sixteen of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Twelve, Chapter Sixteen. Not only did Prince Andrew know he would die, but he felt that he was dying, and was already half dead. He was conscious of an aloofness from everything earthly and a strange and joyous lightness of existence. Without haste or agitation he awaited what was coming. That inexorable, eternal, distant, and unknown, the presence of which he had felt continually all his life, was now near to him, and by the strange lightness he experienced almost comprehensible and palpable. Formerly he had feared the end. He had twice experienced that terribly tormenting fear of death the end, but now he no longer understood that fear. He had felt it for the first time when the shell spun like a top before him, and he looked at the fallow field, the bushes, and the sky, and knew that he was face to face with death. When he came to himself after being wounded, and the flower of eternal, unfettered love had instantly unfolded itself in his soul as if freed from the bondage of life that had restrained it, he no longer feared death and ceased to think about it. During the hours of solitude, suffering, and partial delirium he spent after he was wounded, the more deeply he penetrated into the new principle of eternal love revealed to him, the more he unconsciously detached himself from earthly life. To love everything and everybody, and always to sacrifice oneself for love, meant not to love anyone, not to live this earthly life and the more imbued he became with that principle of love, the more he renounced life and the more completely he destroyed that dreadful barrier which, in the absence of such love, stands between life and death. When during those first days he remembered that he would have to die, he said to himself, Well, what of it? So much the better. But after the night in Metisci, when, half delirious, he had seen her for whom he longed appear before him, and, having pressed her hand to his lips, had shed gentle, happy tears, love for a particular woman again crept unobserved into his heart and once more bound him to life. And joyful and agitating thoughts began to occupy his mind. Recalling the moment at the ambulance station when he had seen Karagin, he could not now regain the feeling he then had, but was tormented by the question whether Karagin was alive 
and he dared not inquire. His illness pursued its normal physical course, but what Natasha referred to when she said, this suddenly happened, had occurred two days before Princess Mary arrived. It was the last spiritual struggle between life and death, in which death gained the victory. It was the unexpected realization of the fact that he still valued life as presented to him in the form of his love for Natasha, and a last, though ultimately vanquished, attack of terror before the unknown. It was evening. As usual after dinner he was slightly feverish, and his thoughts were preternaturally clear. Sonia was sitting by the table. He began to doze. Suddenly a feeling of happiness seized him. Ah, she has come, thought he. And so it was. In Sonia's place sat Natasha, who had just come in noiselessly. Since she had begun looking after him, he had always experienced this physical consciousness of her nearness. She was sitting in an armchair placed sideways, screening the light of the candle from him, and was knitting a stocking. She had learned to knit stocking since Prince Andrew had casually mentioned that no one nursed the sick so well as old nurses who knit stockings, and that there is something soothing in the knitting of stockings. The needles clicked lightly in her slender, rapidly moving hands, and he could clearly see the thoughtful profile of her drooping face. She moved, and the ball rolled off her knees. She started, glanced round at him, and screening the candle with her hand, stooped carefully with a supple and exact movement, picked up the ball, and regained her former position. He looked at her without moving, and saw that she wanted to draw a deep breath after stooping, but refrained from doing so, and breathed cautiously. At the Troitsa Monastery they had spoken of the past, and he had told her that if he lived he would always thank God for his wound, which had brought them together again but after that they never spoke of the future. Can it or can it not be? he now thought, as he looked at her and listened to the light click of the steel needles. Can fate have brought me to her so strangely only for me to die? Is it possible that the truth of life has been revealed to me only to show me that I have spent my life in falsity? I love her more than anything in the world, but what am I to do if I love her? he thought and he involuntarily groaned from a habit acquired during his sufferings. On hearing that sound, Natasha put down the stocking, leaned nearer to him, and suddenly, noticing his shining eyes, stepped lightly up to him and bent over him. "'You are not asleep?' "'No, I have been looking at you a long time. I felt you come in. No one else gives me that sense of soft tranquillity that you do, that light.' I want to weep for joy." Natasha drew closer to him. Her face shone with rapturous joy. "'Natasha, I love you too much, more than anything in the world. And I—' She turned away for an instant. "'Why too much?' she asked. "'Why too much? Well, what do you, what do you feel in your soul, your whole soul? Shall I live? What do you think? I am sure of it, sure!" Natasha almost shouted, taking hold of both his hands with a passionate movement. He remained silent a while. How good it would be! And taking her hand, he kissed it. Natasha felt happy and agitated, but
but at once remembered that this would not do, and that he had to be quiet. "'But you have not slept,' she said, repressing her joy. "'Try to sleep, please.' He pressed her hand and released it, and she went back to the candle and sat down again in her former position. Twice she turned and looked at him, and her eyes met his beaming at her. She set herself a task on her stocking and resolved not to turn round till it was finished. Soon he really shut his eyes and fell asleep. He did not sleep long and suddenly awoke with a start and in a cold perspiration. As he fell asleep he had still been thinking of the subject that now always occupied his mind, about life and death, and chiefly about death. He felt himself nearer to it. Love? What is love? he thought. Love hinders death. Love is life. All, everything that I understand, I understand only because I love. Everything is, everything exists only because I love. Everything is united by it alone. Love is God, and to die means that I, a particle of love, shall return to the general and eternal source. These thoughts seemed to him comforting, but they were only thoughts. Something was lacking in them. They were not clear. They were too one-sidedly personal and brain-spun. And there was the former agitation and obscurity. He fell asleep. He dreamed that he was lying in the room he was really in, but that he was quite well and unwounded. Many various indifferent and insignificant people appeared before him. He talked to them and discussed something trivial. They were preparing to go away somewhere. Prince Andrew dimly realized that all this was trivial, and that he had more important cares, but he continued to speak, surprising them by empty witticisms. Gradually, unnoticed, all these persons began to disappear, and a single question, that of the closed door, superseded all else. He rose and went to the door to bolt and lock it. Everything depended on whether he was or was not in time to lock it. He went and tried to hurry, but his legs refused to move, and he knew he would not be in time to lock the door, though he painfully strained all his powers. He was seized by an agonizing fear, and that fear was the fear of death. It stood behind the door. But just when he was clumsily creeping toward the door, that dreadful something on the other side was already pressing against it and forcing its way in. Something not human, death, was breaking in through that door and had to be kept out. He seized the door, making a final effort to hold it back. To lock it was no longer possible, but his efforts were weak and clumsy, and the door, pushed from behind by that terror, opened and closed again. Once again it pushed from outside. His last superhuman efforts were vain, and both halves of the door noiselessly opened. It entered, and it was death, and Prince Andrew died. But at the instant he died, Prince Andrew remembered that he was asleep, and at the very instant he died, having made an effort, he awoke. Yes, it was death. I died and woke up. Yes, death is an awakening. And all at once it grew light in his soul, and the veil that had till then concealed the unknown was lifted from his spiritual vision. He felt as if powers till then confined within him had been liberated, and that strange lightness did not again leave him. 
When waking in a cold perspiration, he moved on the divan. Natasha went up and asked him what was the matter. He did not answer and looked at her strangely, not understanding. That was what had happened to him two days before Princess Mary's arrival. From that day, as the doctor expressed it, the wasting fever assumed a malignant character, but what the doctor said did not interest Natasha. She saw the terrible moral symptoms which to her were more convincing. From that day an awakening from life came to Prince Andrew together with his awakening from sleep. And compared to the duration of life it did not seem to him slower than an awakening from sleep compared to the duration of a dream. There was nothing terrible or violent in this comparatively slow awakening. His last days and hours passed in an ordinary and simple way. Both Princess Mary and Natasha, who did not leave him, felt this. They did not weep or shudder, and during these last days they themselves felt that they were not attending on him, he was no longer there, he had left them, but on what reminded them most closely of him, his body. Both felt this so strongly that the outward and terrible side of death did not affect them, and they did not feel it necessary to foment their grief. Neither in his presence nor out of it did they weep, nor did they ever talk to one another about him. They felt that they could not express in words what they understood. They both saw that he was sinking slowly and quietly deeper and deeper away from them, and they both knew that this had to be so and that it was right. He confessed and received communion. Everyone came to take leave of him. When they brought his son to him, he pressed his lips to the boys and turned away, not because he felt it hard and sad—Princess Mary and Natasha understood that—but simply because he thought it was all that was required of him. But when they told him to bless the boy, he did what was demanded and looked round, as if asking whether there was anything else he should do. When the last convulsions of the body, which the spirit was leaving, occurred, Princess Mary and Natasha were present. "'Is it over?' said Princess Mary, when his body had for a few minutes lain motionless, growing cold before them. Natasha went up, looked at the dead eyes, and hastened to close them. She closed them, but did not kiss them, but clung to that which reminded her most dearly of him, his body. "'Where has he gone? Where is he now?' When the body, washed and dressed, lay in the coffin on a table, Everyone came to take leave of him, and they all wept. Little Nicholas cried because his heart was rent by painful perplexity. The Countess and Sonia cried from pity for Natasha and because he was no more. The old Count cried because he felt that, before long, he too must take the same terrible step. Natasha and Princess Mary also wept now, but not because of their own personal grief. They wept with a reverent and softening emotion, which had taken possession of their souls at the consciousness of the simple and solemn mystery of death that had been accomplished in their presence. End of Book Twelve, Chapter Sixteen Book Thirteen, Chapter One Of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 13. 1812. 
Chapter 1 Man's mind cannot grasp the causes of events in their completeness, but the desire to find those causes is implanted in man's soul. And without considering the multiplicity and complexity of the conditions any one of which taken separately may seem to be the cause, he snatches at the first approximation to a cause that seems to him intelligible, and says, This is the cause. In historical events, where the actions of men are the subject of observation, the first and most primitive approximation to present itself was the will of the gods, and after that the will of those who stood in the most prominent position, the heroes of history. But we need only penetrate to the essence of any historic event, which lies in the activity of the general mass of men who take part in it, to be convinced that the will of the historic hero does not control the actions of the mass but is itself continually controlled. It may seem to be a matter of indifference whether we understand the meaning of historical events this way or that, yet there is the same difference between a man who says that the people of the West moved on the East because Napoleon wished it, and a man who says that this happened because it had to happen, as there is between those who declared that the earth was stationary and that the plants moved round it, and those who admitted that they did not know what upheld the earth, but knew there were laws directing its movement and that of the other planets. There is and can be no cause of an historical event except the one cause of all causes. But there are laws directing events, and some of these laws are known to us while we are conscious of others we cannot comprehend. The discovery of these laws is only possible when we have quite abandoned the attempt to find the cause in the will of some one man just as the discovery of the laws of the motion of the planets was possible only when men abandoned the conception of the fixity of the earth. The historians consider that, next to the Battle of Borodino and the occupation of Moscow by the enemy and its destruction by fire, the most important episode of the War of 1812 was the movement of the Russian army from the Riazana to the Kolaga Road and to the Tarutino camp, the so-called flank march across the Krasnaya Pakra River. They ascribe the glory of that achievement of genius to different men, and dispute as to whom the honor is due. Even foreign historians, including the French, acknowledge the genius of the Russian commanders when they speak of that flank march. But it is hard to understand why military writers, and following them others, consider this flank march to be the profound conception of some one man who saved Russia and destroyed Napoleon. In the first place, it is hard to understand where the profundity and genius of this movement lay, for not much mental effort was needed to see that the best position for an army when it is not being attacked is where there are most provisions. And even a dull boy of thirteen could have guessed that the best position for an army after its retreat from Moscow in 1812 was on the Kaluga Road. So it is impossible to understand by what reasoning the historians reached the conclusion that this maneuver was a profound one and it is even more difficult to understand just why they think that this maneuver was calculated to save Russia and destroy the French. For this flank march, had it been preceded, accompanied, or followed by other circumstances, might have proved ruinous to the Russians and salutary for the French. If the position of the Russian army really began to improve from the time of that march, it does not at all follow that the march was the cause of it. That flank march might not only have failed to give any advantage to the Russian army, but might, in other circumstances, have led to its destruction. 
What would have happened had Moscow not burned down? If Morat had not lost sight of the Russians? If Napoleon had not remained inactive? If the Russian army at Krasnaya Pakra had given battle as Bennigsen and Barclay advised? What would have happened had the French attacked the Russians while they were marching beyond the Pakra? What would have happened if on approaching Tarutino Napoleon had attacked the Russians with but a tenth of the energy he had shown when he attacked them at Smolensk? What would have happened had the French moved on Petersburg? In any of these eventualities, the flank march that brought salvation might have proved disastrous. The third and most incomprehensible thing is that people studying history deliberately avoid seeing that this flank march cannot be attributed to any one man, that no one ever foresaw it, and that in reality, like the retreat from Philly, it did not suggest itself to anyone in its entirety, but resulted, moment by moment, step by step, event by event, from an endless number of most diverse circumstances, and was only seen in its entirety when it had been accomplished and belonged to the past. At the council at Philly, the prevailing thought in the minds of the Russian commanders was the one naturally suggesting itself, namely, a direct retreat by the Nizhny road. In proof of this, there is the fact that the majority of the council voted for such a retreat, and above all, there is the well-known conversation after the council, between the commander-in-chief and Lanskoy, who was in charge of the commissariat department. Lanskoy informed the commander-in-chief that the army supplies were for the most part stored along the Oka in the Tula and Riazan provinces, and that if they retreated on Nizhny, the army would be separated from its supplies by the broad river Oka, which cannot be crossed early in winter. This was the first indication of the necessity of deviating from what had previously seemed the most natural course, a direct retreat on the Nizhny Novgorod. The army turned more to the south along the Riazan road and nearer to its supplies. Subsequently, the inactivity of the French, who even lost sight of the Russian army, concerned for the safety of the arsenal at Tula, and especially the advantages of drawing nearer to its supplies, caused the army to turn still further south to the Tula road. Having crossed over by a forced march to the Tula road beyond the Pakra, the Russian commanders intended to remain at Podolsk, and had no thought of the Tarutino position. But innumerable circumstances and the reappearance of French troops, who had for a time lost touch with the Russians, and projects of giving battle, and above all the abundance of provisions in Kaluga province, obliged our army to turn still more to the south and to cross from the Tula to the Kaluga road and go to Tarutino, which was between the roads along which those supplies lay. Just as it was impossible to say when it was decided to abandon Moscow, so it is impossible to say precisely when, or by whom, it was decided to move to Tarutino. Only when the army had got there, as the result of innumerable and varying forces, did people begin to assure themselves that they had desired this movement and long ago foreseen its result. End of Book Thirteen, Chapter One Book Thirteen, Chapter Two, of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Thirteen, Chapter Two. The famous flank movement merely consisted in this: 
after the advance of the French had ceased, the Russian army, which had been continually retreating straight back from the invaders, deviated from that direct course, and not finding itself pursued, was naturally drawn toward the district where supplies were abundant. If instead of imagining to ourselves commanders of genius leading the Russian army, we picture that army without any leaders, it could not have done anything but make a return movement toward Moscow, describing an arc in the direction where most provisions were to be found, and where the country was richest. That movement from the Nizhny to the Ryazan, Tula, and Kaluga roads was so natural that even the Russian marauders moved in that direction, and demands were sent from Petersburg for Kutuzov to take his army that way. At Tarantino, Kutuzov received what was almost a reprimand from the Emperor for having moved his army along the Ryazan road, and the Emperor's letter indicated to him the very position he had already occupied near Kaluga. Having rolled like a ball in the direction of the impetus given by the whole campaign and by the Battle of Borodino, the Russian army, when the strength of that impetus was exhausted and no fresh push was received, assumed the position natural to it. Kutuzov's merit lay not in any strategic maneuver of genius, as it is called, but in the fact that he alone understood the significance of what had happened. He alone then understood the meaning of the French army's inactivity. He alone continued to assert that the Battle of Borodino had been a victory. He alone, who as commander-in-chief might have been expected to be eager to attack, employed his whole strength to restrain the Russian army from useless engagements. The beast wounded at Borodino was lying where the fleeing hunter had left him, but whether he was still alive, whether he was strong and merely lying low, the hunter did not know. Suddenly the beast was heard to moan. The moan of that wounded beast, the French army, which betrayed its calamitous condition was the sending of Lauriston to Kutuzov's camp with overtures for peace. Napoleon, with his usual assurance that whatever entered his head was right, wrote to Kutuzov the first words that occurred to him, though they were meaningless. Monsieur le Prince Kutuzov, I am sending one of my adjutants-general to discuss several interesting questions with you. I beg your highness to credit what he says to you, especially when he expresses the sentiment of esteem and special regard I have long entertained for your person. This letter having no other object, I pray God, Monsieur le Prince Kutuzov, to keep you in his holy and gracious protection. Napoleon, Moscow, October 30, 1812 Kutuzov replied, I should be cursed by posterity, were I looked on as the initiator of a settlement of any sort. Such is the present spirit of my nation. But he continued to exert all his powers to restrain his troops from attacking. During the month that the French troops were pillaging in Moscow, and the Russian troops were quietly encamped at Tarutino, a change had taken place in the relative strength of the two armies, both in spirit and in number, as a result of which the superiority had passed to the Russian side. Though the condition and numbers of the French army were unknown to the Russians, as soon as that change occurred the need of attacking at once showed itself by countless signs. These signs were Lauriston's mission, the abundance of provisions at Tarutino, the reports coming in from all sides of the inactivity and disorder of the French, the flow of recruits to our regiments, the fine weather, 
the long rest the Russian soldiers had enjoyed, and the impatience to do what they had been assembled for, which usually shows itself in an army that has been resting. Curiosity as to what the French army, so long lost sight of, was doing. The boldness with which our outposts now scouted close up to the French stationed at Tarotino. The news of easy successes gained by peasants and guerrilla troops over the French, the envy aroused by this the desire for revenge that lay in the heart of every Russian as long as the French were in Moscow, and, above all, a dim consciousness in every soldier's mind that the relative strength of the armies had changed, and that the advantage was now on our side. There was a substantial change in the relative strength, and an advance had become inevitable. And at once, as a clock begins to strike and chime as soon as the minute hand has completed a full circle, this change was shown by an increased activity, whirring, and chiming in the higher spheres. End of Book Thirteen, Chapter Two. Book Thirteen, Chapter Three, of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Thirteen. Chapter Three. The Russian army was commanded by Kutuzov and his staff, and also by the Emperor from Petersburg. Before the news of the abandonment of Moscow had been received in Petersburg, a detailed plan of the whole campaign had been drawn up and sent to Kutuzov for his guidance. Though this plan had been drawn up on the supposition that Moscow was still in our hands, it was approved by the staff and accepted as a basis for action. Kutuzov only replied that movements arranged from a distance were always difficult to execute. So fresh instructions were sent for the solution of difficulties that might be encountered, as well as fresh people who were to watch Kutuzov's actions and report upon them. Besides this, the whole staff of the Russian army was now reorganized. The posts left vacant by Bagradian, who had been killed, and by Barclay, who had gone away in dudgeon, had to be filled. Very serious consideration was given to the question whether it would be better to put A in B's place and B in D's, or on the contrary to put D in A's place and so on, as if anything more than A's or B's satisfaction depended on this. As a result of the hostility between Kutuzov and Benningsen, his chief of staff, the presence of confidential representatives of the Emperor, and these transfers, a more than usually complicated play of parties was going on among the staff of the army. A was undermining B, D was undermining C, and so on in all possible combinations and permutations. In all these plottings the subject of intrigue was generally the conduct of the war, which all these men believed they were directing. But this affair of the war went on independently of them, as it had to go. That is, never in the way people devised but flowing always from the essential attitude of the masses. Only in the highest spheres did all these schemes, crossings, and interminglings appear to be a true reflection of what had to happen. "'Prince Michael Ilyaronovitch,' wrote the Emperor on the 2nd of October in a letter that reached Kutuzov after the battle at Tarotino. "'Since September 2nd, Moscow has been in the hands of the enemy. Your last reports were written on the 20th, and during all this time not only has no action been taken against the enemy or for the relief of the ancient capital, but according to your last report you have even retreated farther. 
Serpukov is already occupied by an enemy detachment, and Tula, with its famous arsenal, so indispensable to the army, is in danger. From General Vincengaroda's reports, I see that an enemy corps of ten thousand men is moving on the Petersburg Road. Another corps of several thousand men is moving on Dmitrov. A third has advanced along the Vladimir Road, and a fourth, rather considerable detachment, is stationed between Ruza and Mozhaisk. Napoleon himself was in Moscow as late as the twenty-fifth. In view of all this information, when the enemy has scattered his forces in large detachments, and with Napoleon and his guards in Moscow, is it possible that the enemy's forces confronting you are so considerable as not to allow of your taking the offensive? On the contrary, he is probably pursuing you with detachments, or at most with an army corps much weaker than the army entrusted to you. It would seem that, availing yourself of these circumstances, you might advantageously attack a weaker one and annihilate him, or at least oblige him to retreat, retaining in our hands an important part of the provinces now occupied by the enemy, and thereby averting danger from Tula and other towns in the interior. You will be responsible if the enemy is able to direct a force of any size against Petersburg to threaten this capital, in which it has not been possible to retain many troops. For with the army entrusted to you, and acting with resolution and energy, you have ample means to avert this fresh calamity. Remember that you have still to answer to our offended country for the loss of Moscow. You have experienced my readiness to reward you. That readiness will not weaken in me, but I and Russia have a right to expect from you all the zeal, firmness, and success which your intellect, military talent, and the courage of the troops you command justify us in expecting. But by the time this letter, which proved that the real relation of the forces had already made itself felt in Petersburg, was dispatched, Kutuzov had found himself unable any longer to restrain the army he commanded from attacking, and a battle had taken place. On the 2nd of October a Cossack, Shapovalov, who was out scouting, killed one hare and wounded another. Following the wounded hare, he made his way far into the forest, and came upon the left flank of Murat's army, and camped there without any precautions. The Cossack laughingly told his comrades how he had almost fallen into the hands of the French. A cornet, hearing the story, informed his commander. The Cossack was sent for and questioned. The Cossack officers wished to take advantage of this chance to capture some horses, but one of the superior officers, who was acquainted with the higher authorities, reported the incident to a general on the staff. The state of things on the staff had of late been exceedingly strained. Ermolov had been sent to see Benningsen a few days previously, and had entreated him to use his influence with the commander-in-chief to induce him to take the offensive. "'If I did not know you, I should think you did not want what you are asking for.' I need only advise anything, and His Highness is sure to do the opposite," replied Benningsen. The Cossack's report, confirmed by horse patrols who were sent out, was the final proof that events had matured. The tightly coiled spring was released, the clock began to whir and the chimes to play. Despite all his supposed power, his intellect, his experience, and his knowledge of men, Kutuzov, Having taken into consideration the Cossack's report, a note from Benningsen who sent personal reports to the Emperor, the wishes he supposed the Emperor to hold, 
and the fact that all the generals expressed the same wish, could no longer check the inevitable movement, and gave the order to do what he regarded as useless and harmful, gave his approval, that is, to the accomplished fact. End of Book Thirteen, Chapter Three Book Thirteen, Chapter Four of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Thirteen, Chapter Four. Bennigsen's note and the Cossacks' information that the left flank of the French was unguarded were merely the final indications that it was necessary to order an attack and it was fixed for the 5th of October. On the morning of the 4th of October, Kutuzov signed the dispositions. Toll read them to Ormolov, asking him to attend to the further arrangements. "'All right, all right. I haven't time just now,' replied Ormolov, and left the hut. The dispositions drawn up by Toll were very good. As in the Austerlitz dispositions, it was written, though not in German this time, the first column will march here and here, the second column will march there and there, and so on. And on paper, all these columns arrived at their places at the appointed time and destroyed the enemy. Everything had been admirably thought out as is usual in dispositions, and as is always the case, not a single column reached its place at the appointed time. When the necessary number of copies of the dispositions had been prepared, an officer was summoned and sent to deliver them to Ermolov to deal with. A young officer of the horse-guards, Kutuzov's orderly, pleased at the importance of the mission entrusted to him, went to Ermolov's quarters. "'Gone away,' said Ermolov's orderly. The officer of the horse-guards went to a general with whom Ermolov was often to be found. "'No, and the general's out, too.' The officer, mounting his horse, rode off to someone else. No, he's gone out. If only they don't make me responsible for this delay! What a nuisance it is! thought the officer, and he rode round the whole camp. One man said he had seen Armolov ride past with some other generals, others said he must have returned home. The officer searched till six o'clock in the evening without even stopping to eat. Ermolov was nowhere to be found, and no one knew where he was. The officer snatched a little food at a comrade's and rode again to the vanguard to find Miloradovich. Miloradovich, too, was away, but here he was told that he had gone to a ball at General Kikin's and that Ermolov was probably there, too. "'But where is it?' "'Why, there, over at Etchkino,' said a Cossack officer, pointing to a country-house in the far distance. "'What, outside our line?' "'They've put two regiments as outposts, and they're having such a spree there it's awful. Two bands and three sets of singers!' The officer rode out beyond our lines to Etchkino. While still at a distance, he heard as he rode the merry sounds of a soldier's dance-song proceeding from the house. "'In the meadows! In the meadows!' he heard, accompanied by a whistling and the sound of a torban, drowned every now and then by shouts. These sounds made his spirits rise, but at the same time he was afraid that he would be blamed for not having executed sooner the important order entrusted to him. 
It was already past eight o'clock. He dismounted and went up into the porch of a large country house, which had remained intact between the Russian and French forces. In the refreshment room and the hall, footmen were bustling about with wine and viands. Groups of singers stood outside the windows. The officer was admitted and immediately saw all the chief generals of the army together, and among them Ermolov's big, imposing figure. They all had their coats unbuttoned and were standing in a semicircle with flushed and animated faces, laughing loudly. In the middle of the room, a short, handsome general with a red face was dancing the trepak with much spirit and agility. Ha ha ha! Bravo, Nicholas Ivanitch! Ha ha ha! The officer felt that by arriving with important orders at such a moment he was doubly to blame, and he would have preferred to wait. But one of the generals espied him, and hearing what he had come about, informed Ermolov. Ermolov came forward with a frown on his face, and hearing what the officer had to say, took the papers from him without a word. You think he went off just by chance? said a comrade who was on the staff that evening to the officer of the horse guards, referring to Ermolov. It was a trick. It was done on purpose to get Konovnitsyn into trouble. You'll see what a mess there'll be tomorrow. End of Book Thirteen, Chapter Four. Book Thirteen, Chapter Five, of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Thirteen. Chapter 5 Next day, the decrepit Kutuzov, having given orders to be called early, said his prayers, dressed, and with an unpleasant consciousness of having to direct a battle he did not approve of, got into his kalesh and drove from Letashovka, a village three and a half miles from Tarotino, to the place where the attacking columns were to meet. He sat in the kalesh, dozing and waking up by turns, and listening for any sound of firing on the right as an indication that the action had begun. But all was still quiet. A damp, dull autumn morning was just dawning. On approaching Tarotino, Kutuzov noticed cavalrymen leading their horses to water across the road along which he was driving. Kutuzov looked at them searchingly, stopped his carriage, and inquired what regiment they belonged to. They belonged to a column that should have been far in front and in ambush long before then. It may be a mistake, thought the old commander-in-chief. But a little further on, he saw infantry regiments with their arms piled and the soldiers, only partly dressed, eating their rye porridge and carrying fuel. He sent for an officer. The officer reported that no order to advance had been received. How? Not res— Kutuzov began, but checked himself immediately and sent for a senior officer. Getting out of his kalesh, he waited with drooping head and breathing heavily, pacing silently up and down. When Aiken, the officer of the general staff whom he had summoned, appeared, Kutuzov went purple in the face, not because that officer was to blame for the mistake, but because he was an object of sufficient importance for him to vent his wrath on. Trembling and panting, the old man fell into that state of fury in which he sometimes used to roll on the ground, and he fell upon Aiken, 
threatening him with his hands, shouting and loading him with gross abuse. Another man, Captain Brozen, who happened to turn up and who was not at all to blame, suffered the same fate. "'What sort of another blackguard are you? I'll have you shot! Scoundrels!' yelled Kutuzov in a hoarse voice, waving his arms and reeling. He was suffering physically. He, the commander-in-chief, a serene highness who everybody said possessed powers such as no man had ever had in Russia, to be placed in this position, made the laughing-stock of the whole army. I needn't have been such a hurry to pray about today, or have kept awake thinking everything over all night," thought he to himself. When I was a chit of an officer, no one would have dared to mock me so. And now— He was in a state of physical suffering, as if from corporal punishment, and could not avoid expressing it by cries of anger and distress. But his strength soon began to fail him, and looking about him, conscious of having said much that was amiss, he again got into his calèche and drove back in silence. His wrath, once expended, did not return, and blinking feebly, he listened to excuses and self-justifications, for Molov did not come to see him till the next day, and to the insistence of Benningsen, Kotovnitsyn, and Toll that the movement that had miscarried should be executed next day. And once more Kutuzov had to consent. End of Book Thirteen, Chapter Five. Book Thirteen, Chapter Six, of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Thirteen, Chapter Six. Next day the troops assembled in their appointed places in the evening and advanced during the night. It was an autumn night with dark purple clouds, but no rain. The ground was damp but not muddy, and the troops advanced noiselessly, only occasionally a jingling of the artillery could be faintly heard. The men were forbidden to talk out loud, to smoke their pipes, or to strike a light, and they tried to prevent their horses neighing. The secrecy of the undertaking heightened its charm, and they marched gaily. Some columns, supposing they had reached their destination, halted, piled arms, and settled down on the cold ground, but the majority marched all night, and arrived at places where they evidently should not have been. Only Count Orlov Denisov, with his Cossacks, the least important detachment of all, got to his appointed place at the right time. This detachment halted at the outskirts of a forest, on the path leading from the village of Stromilova to Dmitrovsk. Toward dawn, Count Orlov Denisov, who had dozed off, was awakened by a deserter from the French army being brought to him. This was a Polish sergeant of Poniatowski's corps, who explained in Polish that he had come over because he had been slighted in the service, that he ought long ago to have been made an officer, that he was braver than any of them, and so he had left them and wished to pay them out. He said that Murat was spending the night less than a mile from where they were, and that if they would let him have a convoy of a hundred men, he would capture him alive. Count Orlov Denisov consulted his fellow officers. The offer was too tempting to be refused. Everyone volunteered to go, and everybody advised making the attempt. After much disputing and arguing, Major General Grekov with two Cossack regiments decided to go with the Polish sergeant. 
Now, remember, said Count Orlov Denisov to the sergeant at parting, if you have been lying, I'll have you hang like a dog. But if it's true, you shall have a hundred gold pieces. Without replying, the sergeant, with a resolute air, mounted and rode away with Grekov, whose men had quickly assembled. They disappeared into the forest, and Count Orlov Denisov, having seen Grekov off, returned, shivering from the freshness of the early dawn, and excited by what he had undertaken on his own responsibility, and began looking at the enemy camp, now just visible in the deceptive light of dawn and the dying campfires. Our columns ought to have begun to appear on an open declivity to his right. He looked in that direction, but though the columns would have been visible quite far off, they were not to be seen. It seemed to the Count that things were beginning to stir in the French camp, and his keen-sighted adjutant confirmed this. "'Oh, it is really too late,' said Count Orlov, looking at the camp. As often happens when someone we have trusted is no longer before our eyes, it suddenly seemed quite clear and obvious to him that the sergeant was an impostor, that he had lied, and that the whole Russian attack would be ruined by the absence of those two regiments, which he would lead away heaven only knew where. How could one capture a commander-in-chief from among such a mass of troops? "'I am sure that rascal was lying,' said the Count. "'They can still be called back,' said one of his suite who, like Count Orlov, felt distrustful of the adventure when he looked at the enemy's camp. "'Eh, really? What do you think? Should we let them go on, or not?' "'Will you have them fetched back?' "'Fetch them back! Fetch them back!' said Count Orlov, with sudden determination, looking at his watch. "'It will be too late. It is quite light.' And the adjutant galloped through the forest after Grekov. When Grekov returned, Count Orlov Denisov, excited both by the abandoned attempt and by vainly awaiting the infantry columns that still did not appear, as well as by the proximity of the enemy, resolved to advance. All his men felt the same excitement. "'Mount!' he commanded in a whisper. The men took their places and crossed themselves. "'Forward, with God's aid!' "'Hurrah! Ah! Ah!' reverberated in the forest and the Cossack companies, trailing their lances and advancing one after another as if poured out of a sack, dashed gaily across the brook toward the camp. One desperate, frightened yell from the first French soldier who saw the Cossacks, and all who were in the camp, undressed and only just waking up, ran off in all directions, abandoning cannons, muskets, and horses. Had the Cossacks pursued the French, without heeding what was behind and around them, they would have captured Marat and everything there. That was what the officers desired. But it was impossible to make the Cossacks budge when once they got booty and prisoners. None of them listened to orders. Fifteen hundred prisoners and thirty-eight guns were taken on the spot, besides standards and what seemed most important to the Cossacks, horses, saddles, horse-cloths, and the like. All this had to be dealt with the prisoners and guns secured, the booty divided, not without some shouting, and even a little fighting among themselves, and it was on this that the Cossacks all busied themselves. The French, not being farther pursued, began to recover themselves. They formed into detachments and began firing. 
Orlov Denisov, still waiting for the other columns to arrive, advanced no further. Meantime, according to the dispositions which said that the first column will march, and so on, the infantry of the belated columns, commanded by Benningson and directed by Toll, had started in due order and, as always happens, had got somewhere but not to their appointed places. As always happens, the men, starting cheerfully, began to halt. Murmurs were heard, there was a sense of confusion, and finally a backward movement. Adjutants and generals galloped about, shouted, grew angry, quarreled, said they had come quite wrong and were late, gave vent to a little abuse, and at last gave it all up and went forward, simply to get somewhere. "'We shall get somewhere or other.' And they did indeed get somewhere, though not to their right places. A few eventually even got to their right place, but too late to be of any use and only in time to be fired at. Toll, who in this battle played the part of Weyroder at Austerlitz, galloped assiduously from place to place, finding everything upside down everywhere. Thus he stumbled upon Bagovut's corps in a wood when it was already broad daylight, though the corps should long before have joined Orlov Denisov. Excited and vexed by the failure and supposing that someone must be responsible for it, Toll galloped up to the commander of the corps and began upbraiding him severely, saying that he ought to be shot. General Bagovut, a fighting old soldier of placid temperament, being also upset by all the delay, confusion and cross-purposes, fell into a rage to everybody's surprise, and quite contrary to his usual character, and said disagreeable things to Toll. "'I prefer not to take lessons from anyone, but I can die with my men as well as anybody,' he said, and advanced with a single division. Coming out onto a field under the enemy's fire, this brave general went straight ahead, leading his men under fire, without considering in his agitation whether going into action now, with a single division, would be of any use or no. Danger, cannon-balls and bullets were just what he needed in his angry mood. One of the first bullets killed him, and other bullets killed many of his men, and his division remained under fire for some time quite uselessly. End of Book Thirteen, Chapter Six Book Thirteen, Chapter Seven of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Thirteen, Chapter Seven. Meanwhile, another column was to have attacked the French from the front, but Kutuzov accompanied that column. He well knew that nothing but confusion would come of this battle undertaken against his will, and as far as was in his power held the troops back. He did not advance. He rode silently on his small grey horse, indolently answering suggestions that they should attack. "'The word attack is always on your tongue, but you don't see that we are unable to execute complicated maneuvers,' said he to Miloradovich, who asked permission to advance. We couldn't take Marat prisoner this morning or get to the place in time, and nothing can be done now," he replied to someone else. When Kutuzov was informed that at the French rear, where, according to the reports of the Cossacks, there had previously been nobody, there were now two battalions of Poles, 
he gave a sidelong glance at Ermolov, who was behind him and to whom he had not spoken since the previous day. "'You see, they're asking to attack and making plans of all kinds, but as soon as one gets to business nothing is ready and the enemy, forewarned, takes measures accordingly.' Ermolov screwed up his eyes and smiled faintly on hearing these words. He understood that for him the storm had blown over and that Kutuzov would content himself with that hint. "'He's having a little fun at my expense,' said Ermolov softly, nudging with his knee Raevsky, who was at his side. Soon after this, Ermolov moved up to Kutuzov and respectfully remarked, "'It is not too late yet, Your Highness. The enemy has not gone away. If you were to order an attack. If not, the guards will not so much as see a little smoke.' Kutuzov did not reply, but when they reported to him that Murat's troops were in retreat he ordered an advance, though at every hundred paces he halted for three-quarters of an hour. The whole battle consisted in what Orlov Denisov's Cossacks had done. The rest of the army merely lost some hundreds of men uselessly. In consequence of this battle Kutuzov received a diamond decoration and Benningson some diamonds and a hundred thousand roubles. Others also received pleasant recognitions corresponding to their various grades, and following the battle fresh changes were made in the staff. "'That's how everything is done with us, all topsy-turvy,' said the Russian officers and generals after the Tarantino battle, letting it be understood that some fool there is doing things all wrong, but that we ourselves should not have done so just as people speak today. But people who talk like that either do not know what they are talking about or deliberately deceive themselves. No battle, Tarantino, Borodino, or Austerlitz, takes place as those who planned it anticipated. That is an essential condition. A countless number of free forces, for nowhere is man freer than during a battle, where it is a question of life and death influence the course taken by the fight, and that course never can be known in advance, and never coincides with the direction of any one force. If many simultaneously and variously directed forces act on a given body, the direction of its motion cannot coincide with any one of those forces, but will always be a mean. What in mechanics is represented by the diagonal of a parallelogram of forces? If in the descriptions given by historians, especially French ones, we find their wars and battles carried out in accordance with previously formed plans, the only conclusion to be drawn is that those descriptions are false. The Battle of Tarantino obviously did not attain the aim Tollhead in view, to lead the troops into action in the order prescribed by the dispositions, nor that which Count Orlov Denisov may have had in view to take Marat prisoner, nor the result of immediately destroying the whole corps, which Benningson and others may have had in view, nor the aim of the officer who wished to go into action to distinguish himself, nor that of the Cossack who wanted more booty than he got, and so on. But if the aim of the battle was what actually resulted and what all the Russians of that day desired, to drive the French out of Russia and destroy their army, it is quite clear that the Battle of Tarantino, 
just because of its incongruities, was exactly what was wanted at that stage of the campaign. It would be difficult and even impossible to imagine any result more opportune than the actual outcome of this battle. With a minimum of effort and insignificant losses, despite the greatest confusion, the most important results of the whole campaign were attained. The transition from retreat to advance, an exposure of the weakness of the French, and the administration of that shock which Napoleon's army had only awaited to begin its flight. End of Book Thirteen, Chapter Seven. Book Thirteen, Chapter Eight, of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Thirteen, Chapter Eight. Napoleon enters Moscow after the brilliant victory della Moscova. There can be no doubt about the victory, for the battlefield remains in the hands of the French. The Russians retreat and abandon their ancient capital. Moscow, abounding in provisions, arms, munitions, and incalculable wealth, is in Napoleon's hands. The Russian army, only half the strength of the French, does not make a single attempt to attack for a whole month. Napoleon's position is most brilliant. He can either fall on the Russian army with double its strength and destroy it, negotiate an advantageous peace, or in case of a refusal make a menacing move on Petersburg, or even, in the case of a reverse, return to Smolensk or Vilna, or remain in Moscow. In short, no special genius would seem to be required to retain the brilliant position the French held at that time. For that, only very simple and easy steps were necessary, not to allow the troops to loot, to prepare winter clothing, of which there was sufficient in Moscow for the whole army, and methodically to collect the provisions of which, according to the French historians, there were enough in Moscow to supply the whole army for six months. Yet Napoleon, that greatest of all geniuses, who the historians declare had control of the army, took none of these steps. He not merely did nothing of the kind, but on the contrary, he used his power to select the most foolish and ruinous of all the courses open to him. Of all that Napoleon might have done, wintering in Moscow, advancing on Petersburg or on Nizhny Novgorod, or retiring by a more northerly or more southerly route, say by the road Kutuzov afterwards took, nothing more stupid or disastrous can be imagined than what he actually did. He remained in Moscow till October, letting the troops plunder the city. Then, hesitating whether to leave a garrison behind him, he quitted Moscow, approached Kutuzov without joining battle, turned to the right and reached Malo Yaroslavets, again without attempting to break through and take the road Kutuzov took, but retiring instead to Mozhesk along the devastated Smolensk road. Nothing more stupid than that could have been devised or more disastrous for the army, as the sequel showed. Had Napoleon's aim been to destroy his army, the most skilful strategist could hardly have devised any series of actions that would so completely have accomplished that purpose, independently of anything the Russian army might do. Napoleon, the man of genius, did this. But to say that he destroyed his army because he wished to, or because he was very stupid, 
would be as unjust as to say that he had brought his troops to Moscow because he wished to, and because he was very clever and a genius. In both cases, his personal activity, having no more force than the personal activity of any soldier, merely coincided with the laws that guided the event. The historians quite falsely represent Napoleon's faculties as having weakened in Moscow, and do so only because the results did not justify his actions. He employed all his ability and strength to do the best he could for himself and his army, as he had done previously and as he did subsequently in 1813. His activity at that time was no less astounding than it was in Egypt, in Italy, in Austria, and in Prussia. We do not know for certain in how far his genius was genuine in Egypt, where forty centuries looked down upon his grandeur, for his great exploits there are all told to us by Frenchmen. We cannot accurately estimate his genius in Austria or Prussia, for we have to draw our information from French or German sources, and the incomprehensible surrender of whole corps without fighting and of fortresses without a siege must incline Germans to recognize his genius as the only explanation of the war carried on in Germany. But we, thank God, have no need to recognize his genius in order to hide our shame. We have paid for the right to look at the matter plainly and simply, and we will not abandon that right. His activity in Moscow was as amazing and as full of genius as elsewhere. Order after order and plan after plan were issued by him from the time he entered Moscow till the time he left it. The absence of citizens and of a deputation, and even the burning of Moscow did not disconcert him. He did not lose sight either of the welfare of his army or of the doings of the enemy, or of the welfare of the people of Russia, or of the direction of affairs in Paris, or of diplomatic considerations concerning the terms of the anticipated peace. End of Book 13, Chapter 8book 13 chapter 9 of war and peace volume 4 by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book 13 chapter 9 with regard to military matters napoleon immediately on his entry into moscow gave general sebastiani strict orders to observe the movements of the russian army sent army corps out along the different roads, and charged Marat to find Kutuzov. Then he gave careful directions about the fortification of the Kremlin, and drew up a brilliant plan for a future campaign over the whole map of Russia. With regard to diplomatic questions, Napoleon summoned Captain Yakovlev, who had been robbed and was in rags and did not know how to get out of Moscow, minutely explained to him his whole policy and his magnanimity and having written a letter to the Emperor Alexander, in which he considered it his duty to inform his friend and brother that Rostopchin had managed affairs badly in Moscow, he dispatched Yakovlev to Petersburg. Having similarly explained his views and his magnanimity to Tutomlin, he dispatched that old man also to Petersburg to negotiate. With regard to legal matters, immediately after the fires he gave orders to find and execute the incendiaries and the scoundrel Rostopchin was punished by an order to burn down his houses. With regard to administrative matters, Moscow was granted a constitution. 
a municipality was established and the following announcement issued. Inhabitants of Moscow. Your misfortunes are cruel, but His Majesty the Emperor and King desires to arrest their course. Terrible examples have taught you how he punishes disobedience and crime. Strict measures have been taken to put an end to disorder and to re-establish public security. A paternal administration, chosen from among yourselves, will form your municipality or city government. It will take care of you, of your needs, and of your welfare. Its members will be distinguished by a red ribbon worn across the shoulder, and the mayor of the city will wear a white belt as well. But when not on duty, they will only wear a red ribbon round the left arm. The city police is established on its former footing, and better order already prevails in consequence of its activity. The government has appointed two commissaries-general, or chiefs of police, and twenty commissaries, or captains of wards, have been appointed to the different wards of the city. You will recognize them by the white ribbon they will wear on the left arm. Several churches of different denominations are open, and divine service is performed in them unhindered. Your fellow-citizens are returning every day to their homes, and orders have been given that they should find in them the help and protection due to their misfortunes. These are the measures the government has adopted to re-establish order and relieve your condition. But to achieve this aim, it is necessary that you should add your efforts, and should, if possible, forget the misfortunes you have suffered, should entertain the hope of a less cruel fate, should be certain that inevitable and ignominious death awaits those who make any attempt on your persons or on what remains of your property, and finally that you should not doubt that these will be safeguarded, since this is the will of the greatest and most just of monarchs. Soldiers and citizens, of whatever nation you may be, re-establish public confidence, the source of the welfare of a state, live like brothers, render mutual aid and protection to one another, unite to defeat the intentions of the evil-minded, obey the military and civil authorities, and your tears will soon cease to flow. With regard to supplies for the army, Napoleon decreed that all the troops in turn should enter Moscow a la marode, as looters, to obtain provisions for themselves so that the army might have its future provided for. With regard to religion, Napoleon ordered the priests to be brought back, and services to be again performed in the churches. With regard to commerce and to provisioning the army, the following was placarded everywhere. Proclamation. You, peaceful inhabitants of Moscow, artisans and workmen whom misfortune has driven from the city, and you scattered tillers of the soil, still kept out in the fields by groundless fear, listen. Tranquility is returning to this capital, and order is being restored in it. Your fellow-countrymen are emerging boldly from their hiding-places on finding that they are respected. Any violence to them or to their property is promptly punished. His Majesty the Emperor and King protects them, and considers no one among you his enemy except those who disobey his orders. He desires to end your misfortunes and restore you to your homes and families. Respond, therefore, to his benevolent intentions and come to us without fear. Inhabitants, return with confidence to your abodes. You will soon find means of satisfying your needs. Craftsmen and industrious artisans, return to your work, 
your houses, your shops, where the protection of guards awaits you. You shall receive proper pay for your work. And lastly, you too, peasants, come from the forests where you are hiding in terror, return to your huts without fear, in full assurance that you will find protection. Markets are established in the city where peasants can bring their surplus supplies and the products of the soil. The government has taken the following steps to ensure freedom of sale for them. 1. From today, peasants, husbandmen, and those living in the neighborhood of Moscow may without any danger bring their supplies of all kinds to two appointed markets, of which one is on the Mokovaya Street and the other at the Provision Market. 2. Such supplies will be brought from them at such prices as seller and buyer may agree on, and if a seller is unable to obtain a fair price, he will be free to take his goods back to his village, and no one may hinder him under any pretense. 3. Sunday and Wednesday of each week are appointed as the chief market days, and to that end a sufficient number of troops will be stationed along the high roads on Tuesdays and Saturdays, at such distances from the town as to protect the carts. 4. Similar measures will be taken that peasants with their carts and horses may meet with no hindrance on their return journey. 5. Steps will immediately be taken to re-establish ordinary trading. Inhabitants of the city and villages, and you working men and artisans, to whatever nation you belong, you are called on to carry out the paternal intentions of His Majesty the Emperor and King, and to cooperate with him for the public welfare. Lay your respect and confidence at his feet, and do not delay to unite with us. With the object of raising the spirits of the troops and of the people, reviews were constantly held and rewards distributed. The Emperor rode through the streets to comfort the inhabitants, and despite his preoccupation with state affairs, himself visited the theatres that were established by his order. In regard to philanthropy, the greatest virtue of crowned heads, Napoleon also did all in his power. He caused the words Maison de ma mère to be inscribed on the charitable institutions, thereby combining tender filial affection with the majestic benevolence of a monarch. He visited the foundling hospital, and allowing the orphans saved by him to kiss his white hands, graciously conversed with Tutolman. Then, as Thiers eloquently recounts, he ordered his soldiers to be paid in forged Russian money, which he had prepared. Raising the use of these means by an act worthy of himself and of the French army, he let relief be distributed to those who had been burned out. But as food was too precious to be given to foreigners, who were for the most part enemies, Napoleon preferred to supply them with money with which to purchase food from outside, and had paper rubles distributed to them. With reference to army discipline, orders were continually being issued to inflict severe punishment for the non-performance of military duties and to suppress robbery. End of Book 13, Chapter 9《Book Thirteen, Chapter Ten, of War and Peace, Volume Four, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Thirteen, Chapter Ten. But strange to say, all these measures, efforts, and plans, which were not at all worse than others issued in similar circumstances, did not affect the essence of the matter 
but like the hands of a clock detached from the mechanism, swung about in an arbitrary and aimless way without engaging the cogwheels. With reference to the military side, the plan of campaign, that work of genius of which Thiers remarks that, his genius never devised anything more profound, more skilful, or more admirable, and enters into a polemic with Monsieur Fan to prove that this work of genius must be referred not to the fourth, but to the fifteenth of October. That plan never was or could be executed, for it was quite out of touch with the facts of the case. The fortifying of the Kremlin, for which La Mosquée, as Napoleon termed the Church of Basil the Beatified, was to have been raised to the ground, proved quite useless. The mining of the Kremlin only helped toward fulfilling Napoleon's wish that it should be blown up when he left Moscow, as a child wants the floor in which he has hurt himself to be beaten. The pursuit of the Russian army, about which Napoleon was so concerned, produced an unheard-of result. The French generals lost touch with the Russian army of sixty thousand men and according to Thiers it was only eventually found, like a lost pin, by the skill, and apparently the genius, of Marat. With reference to diplomacy, all Napoleon's arguments as to his magnanimity and justice, both to Tolman and to Yakovlev, whose chief concern was to obtain a greatcoat and a conveyance, prove useless. Alexander did not receive these envoys, and did not reply to their embassage. With regard to legal matters, after the execution of the supposed incendiaries, the rest of Moscow burned down. With regard to administrative matters, the establishment of a municipality did not stop the robberies, and was only of use to certain people who formed part of that municipality, and under pretext of preserving order looted Moscow or saved their own property from being looted. With regard to religion, as to which in Egypt matters had so easily been settled by Napoleon's visit to a mosque, no results were achieved. Two or three priests who were found in Moscow did try to carry out Napoleon's wish, but one of them was slapped in the face by a French soldier while conducting service, and a French official reported of another that, "'The priest whom I found and invited to say Mass cleaned and locked up the church. That night the doors were again broken open, the padlocks smashed, the books mutilated and other disorders perpetrated. With reference to commerce, the proclamation to industrious workmen and to peasants evoked no response. There were no industrious workmen, and the peasants caught the commissaries who ventured too far out of the town with the proclamation and killed them. As to the theatres for the entertainment of the people and the troops, these did not meet with success either. The theatres set up in the Kremlin and in Posnyakov's house were closed again at once, because the actors and actresses were robbed. Even philanthropy did not have the desired effect. The genuine, as well as the false paper money which flooded Moscow, lost its value. The French, collecting booty, cared only for gold. Not only was the paper money valueless which Napoleon so graciously distributed to the unfortunate, but even silver lost its value in relation to gold. But the most amazing example of the ineffectiveness of the orders given by the authorities at that time was Napoleon's attempt to stop the looting and re-establish discipline. This is what the army authorities were reporting. Looting continues in the city despite the decrees against it. Order is not yet restored and not a single merchant is carrying on trade in a lawful manner. 
The sutlers alone venture to trade, and they sell stolen goods. The neighborhood of my ward continues to be pillaged by soldiers of the Third Corps, who, not satisfied with taking from the unfortunate inhabitants hiding in the cellars the little they have left, even have the ferocity to wound them with their sabres, as I have repeatedly witnessed. Nothing new, except that the soldiers are robbing and pillaging. October 9. Robbing and pillaging continue. There is a band of thieves in our district who ought to be arrested by a strong force. October 11. The Emperor is extremely displeased that, despite the strict orders to stop pillage, parties of marauding guards are continually seen returning to the Kremlin. Among the old guard, disorder and pillage were renewed more violently than ever yesterday evening, last night, and today. The Emperor sees with regret that the picked soldiers appointed to guard his person, who should set an example of discipline, carry disobedience to such a point that they break into the cellars and stores containing army supplies. Others have disgraced themselves to the extent of disobeying sentinels and officers, and have abused and beaten them. The Grand Marshal of the Palace, wrote the Governor, complains bitterly that, in spite of repeated orders, the soldiers continue to commit nuisances in all the courtyards, and even under the very windows of the Emperor. That army, like a herd of cattle run wild and trampling underfoot the provender which might have saved it from starvation, disintegrated and perished with each additional day it remained in Moscow. But it did not go away. It began to run away only when suddenly seized by a panic caused by the capture of transport trains on the Smolensk Road, and by the Battle of Tarutino. The news of that Battle of Tarutino, unexpectedly received by Napoleon at a review, evoked in him a desire to punish the Russians, Thiers says, and he issued the order for departure which the whole army was demanding. Fleeing from Moscow, the soldiers took with them everything they had stolen. Napoleon, too, carried away his own personal treasure, but on seeing the baggage trains that impeded the army, he was, Thiers says, horror-struck. And yet, with his experience of war, he did not order all the superfluous vehicles to be burned, as he had done with those of a certain marshal when approaching Moscow. He gazed at the caleches and carriages in which soldiers were riding and remarked that it was a very good thing as those vehicles could be used to carry provisions, the sick and the wounded. The plight of the whole army resembled that of a wounded animal which feels it is perishing and does not know what it is doing. To study the skillful tactics and aims of Napoleon and his army from the time it entered Moscow till it was destroyed is like studying the dying leaps and shudders of a mortally wounded animal. Very often a wounded animal, hearing a rustle, rushes straight at the hunter's gun rushes forward and back again, and hastens its own end. Napoleon, under pressure from his whole army, did the same thing. The rustle of the Battle of Tarutino frightened the beast, and it rushed forward onto the hunter's gun, reached him, turned back, and finally, like any wild beast, ran back along the most disadvantageous and dangerous path, where the old scent was familiar. During the whole of that period, Napoleon, who seems to us to have been the leader of all these movements, as the figurehead of a ship may seem to a savage to guide the vessel, acted like a child, who, holding a couple of strings inside a carriage, thinks he is driving it. End of Book 13, Chapter 10
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.